The aviation landscape today, or I should say the skyscape, has three outstanding features in the foreground. The transport aeroplane, which is going faster and faster, the transport helicopter and other vertical takeoff types, which are going both faster and more safely slower, and the rocket, in which man will as surely explore the depth of space as he has already explored the atmosphere which surrounds us here on Earth. In this program, you will first hear Mr. Geoffrey Hall, who is the human dynamo behind the Ferry Aviation Company, who will talk about rotating wing aircraft. As man penetrates farther and faster into space, one of the overruling problems is the medical one. But medicine has for long been concerned with aviation, and you will hear Air Commodore Stewart of the Institute of Aviation Medicine on this subject. Finally, to sum up, you will again hear from Sir George Gardner, the director of that Holy of Holies of Aeronautical Research, the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. But we begin today with Mr. Geoffrey Hall. During the previous programs in this series, the history of man's conquest of the air has been related, and now man is concentrating on furthering these vast achievements. Special attention is now being given to low and high-speed flight. The high-speed end is leading to operations at ever-increasing height, and from this we will see eventually the breakout into space travel. There are certain limitations to the fixed-wing aircraft as we know it today, in that forward speed is necessary to maintain the lift on the wings, and though this is likely to be improved by special development, it still necessitates the use of aerodromes for operation. In this field, we require aircraft which can take off vertically. At the same time, they must be able to carry a maximum useful load and be economic in operation. Here is where the rotary wing comes in. Helicopters have been flying for over 12 years, but until recently their applications have been limited by relatively slow forward speed. This is due to the necessity of tilting the rotor to obtain forward motion, and the moving of this tilted disc through the air creates drag. Another problem is that on the fully loaded rotor, the retreating blade tends to stall with consequent vibration. We have now achieved an important step forward by breaking away from the conventional helicopter. We have discarded the mechanical drive with its heavy shafts and gearing. We now employ a free rotor, which is driven by jet units at the tip of each blade. The aircraft takes off vertically, and as forward speed increases, the fuel supply to the jet units is cut off, and the rotor is allowed to windmill, or as we say, to auto-rotate. The forward speed is obtained by attractive propellers, and to help the rotor still further, wings share the lift. Recently, the ferry rotodyne, built on this principle, has taken a world speed record at an average speed of 191 miles per hour over a closed circuit. We are now building aircraft of this type capable of carrying from 50 to 60 people. These aircraft will be able to take off vertically and to fly from city center to city center at high cruising speeds. 
In other fields, research work is taking place on converter planes of various forms, in some of which the wing for takeoff is vertical and the propellers act as rotors. After climbing away, vertically, the wing and propellers move into the horizontal position and the aircraft becomes a normal fixed-wing aircraft. For the future, vertical jet thrust will play its part. You may recall the famous Rolls-Royce flying bedstead. There is much more to be learned on stability and, of course, the economics are such that until new forms of fuel are available, the ratio between payload and fuel load becomes prohibitive, other than for specialized roles. When we reflect, we more than realize that man's achievements since 1903, a mere 55 years, have been fantastic. Now, rockets are exploring outer space and aircraft are flying at greater speeds to ever-increasing height. Man himself is probing outer space. One thing is certain. We will not stop but go forward. Scientists, designers, technicians and development engineers will master their problems. Much more must be learned about man himself his reflexes and his limitations. Intensive research work is being carried out in this field, and who could speak more knowledgeably to you on this aspect than Air Commodore Stewart of the Royal Air Force Institute of Aviation Medicine? In the past, we have been concerned with such limitations as the prevention of injuries in ditching or crash landing. In cooperation with Royal Aircraft Establishment, we had carried out trials with different forms of seats and safety harnesses on human subjects seated on a trolley and propelled by rockets along a form of railway track. We found that the higher loads of 15 to 18 times the force of gravity, or as we would perhaps call it, 15 to 18 g, were best tolerated when sitting facing backwards, and these trials resulted in the installation of backward-facing seats in Royal Air Force transport aircraft. In civil life, this has only been followed by an Australian airline. The steadily increasing performance of aircraft has required many investigations of human reactions, either in actual flight or in simulated conditions in centrifuges or decompression chambers. The pressurization of aircraft cabins is an example of the use of data gathered from the many classical studies of the effects of oxygen lack at altitudes above 8,000 feet. In civil aircraft, then, this is the maximum permissible aircraft cabin altitude from physiological reasons. But in order to avoid pain in the ears of the travelling public, we find that the rate of change of pressure in the cabin should be limited to perhaps about a pound per square inch per minute. When flying at higher altitudes, the outside air temperature is very low, about minus 55 degrees centigrade and the air is completely dry so that the air of the cabin of the aircraft must be controlled within limits of 68 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and the relative humidity must not fall below 25%, otherwise the passengers will have very disagreeable dying of eyes and mucous membranes of their mouths or throats. 
Smells and odors and bacteria in the air are removed by filtration. In military aviation, new oxygen systems have been developed to enable crews to remain conscious if the pressurization fails at very high altitudes. But in civil aviation, the introduction of the long-range turbine-powered aircraft has also necessitated the design of oxygen equipment to minimize the risks of anoxia if there is a simple failure of pressurization. Any increase in speed really implies a shorter time for the taking of action. Hence a great effort has been expended in determining the relevant human limitations and designing the instrument systems and working spaces of high-performance aircraft so as to avoid overloading the functional capacity of man's nervous system particularly where its speed of reaction is too low. The human brain is a very compact computer. It has an enormous memory capacity and with properly designed aids is sufficiently reliable for most normal flight conditions. However, in the future, when we include certain problems of space travel, we don't know as yet sufficient of abnormal reactions of the human brain which may occur, for example, in conditions of isolation, weightlessness, and alterations in environmental time. These, then, are some of the subjects which will require careful study before we send a human being up into space. I would now like Sir George Gardner to sum up. Thank you, Air Commodore Stewart. In this series of talks, you have heard some of the most interesting and thrilling excerpts from the British aeronautical story you cannot have failed to appreciate the inspiration, ingenuity, skill, courage and determination which have all been applied to achieve such spectacular progress. Nor can you have failed to note that British invention and achievement have made a most substantial contribution to this progress. The opportunity for further spectacular progress is possibly greater now than it has ever been. We now have manned aeroplanes fulfilling vital roles in the military and commercial fields. And we have unmanned aeroplanes or guided missiles taking over from the manned aeroplane in some important military roles. Other unmanned vehicles are being used as laboratories to explore scientifically the space surrounding the Earth and to enable us to gain in some respects a fuller understanding of the Earth on which we live. The pursuit of aeronautical research is bound to open up as yet undreamt possibilities and during the next few decades many of these possibilities will be developed by the application of the advanced technological skills which such possibilities inspire. I will mention in more detail only one of these possibilities, that relating to air transport. Mr Gibbs Smith in his first talk told us something of the inspiration of Sir George Cayley. Sir George Cayley visualized the widespread use of the air as a transport medium by the common man in order that he and his family might travel in this convenient way for their private purposes. Although there has already been a spectacular growth in air travel, the opportunity exists for this volume of traffic to increase many, many times, especially over distances of a few hundred miles. And this will happen if air transport becomes cheaper and more reliable as regards both regularity and safety. I have no doubt at all that great progress will be made in all these directions. If we relate the cost of air travel to real values, 
by making an allowance for inflation, it can be shown that in spite of the enormous increase in cost of transport aeroplanes, the fares have steadily reduced over the years. This is partly because the aeroplane has become more efficient and partly because world prosperity continues to increase. Continuation of these trends will attract great increases in the demand for air transport of both passengers and freight. Also, the regularity and safety of flying will be improved in many directions. One of these possibilities now within our grasp, though not yet applied to commercial flying, is to enable aircraft to land and take off in zero visibility weather conditions. These then are some of the reasons why I believe that air transport will continue to grow in volume. Like Sir George Edwards, I also travelled recently to North Africa in a Comet 4, and I was most favourably impressed by the comfort and convenience of travelling such a long way in this fashion. The flight was quite excellent in all respects, including the gastronomical service and provision, which were luxurious. This experience emphasised greatly to me the enormous strides which have been made since the early days of air travel, and which have been described so graphically in this series by Sir Alan Cobham and others. If wisdom prevails and human skills can be focused on the aims which I have mentioned, I have no doubt that mankind will benefit greatly from the further development of air transport, and that British aeronautical scientists, engineers and operators will continue to make a substantial contribution.